So um, this is such a powerful section that it was really difficult to split it up, and so I didn't. And so what you're getting is the whole, the whole load. And um, also I thought we did want to finish Hebrews before Christmas. So you get two chapters today, seven and eight. So I've been, I've been kind of taunting you the last six weeks, haven't I? You know, about who Melchizedek is. You know, you, you want to know who he is? And I tell you, oh, you got to wait. Well, no more taunting. Today, you get the answer of who Melchizedek is, if I can even get his name right. So, uh, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. And he was a priest in the Jewish covenant of priesthood. And so one of the things that the Jews identify even today is that there is a priesthood that has never ended, that began even before the Levites. And that priesthood began, they believe, with Melchizedek. He would have been the very first priest of the Jewish covenant of priesthood. And, um, and he had some unique titles. He was this priest of uh, Melchizedek, which means uh, literally that he was um, a priest of, of righteousness or a priest of justice. He was the king of Salem. And that's not Massachusetts, nor is it Oregon, but uh, Salem would be Jerusalem. That's the same city. King of Salem was the king of Jerusalem, and Salem means peace, so he was the king of peace and the, and the king of righteousness. And so as Melchizedek, um, as the story goes, well, let's take, it's a short story, so, I mean, it's, it's interesting because all of this is developed from five verses in the Bible about Melchizedek. There's five verses. Four of them are in Genesis, 17 through 20. Let's take a quick look here. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedor, Laomar, and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. That would be the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God the Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered from his battle. So there are three reasons that Melchizedek is is more important than even the great patriarch Abraham and his wife Sarah. And there are three reasons why the preacher who is preaching this sermon to this house church in the book of Hebrews, there are three reasons that he is highlighting Melchizedek as the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus who will be known as the great high priest. The first is a blessing. Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham and Sarah and in turn received that tithe. Now, 
one of the things that it says is that when you give a blessing, you are the greater, and you're giving a blessing to the one who is an inferior. So I, I was thinking of an illustration for that, and I thought, well, wouldn't you come up for communion? And if you have small children, oftentimes the children will come and ask for a blessing. And whether it's me giving it or one of the lay leaders giving it, what they receive is a blessing because they see something greater in the ones giving out the blessing. And so that's the argument for why the blessing that Melchizedek gives to Abram, that's why that blessing is um, denoted as, um, Melchizedek is denoted as the greater one. So he's even greater than Abraham. The second is a tithe. This is a little trickier. We've got to dig a little deeper on this one. Melchizedek received a tithe. He collected a tithe from Abram, the great patriarch. And a tithe would have been 10% of all that Abram has just received as he has conquered in this battle in Kedor Laomar. And so all of the loot that he's bringing back 10% of it now goes to this priest from Jerusalem. And why would Abram give, Abram and Abraham are the same, remember as the name change, why would he give 10% of his recent bounty to this priest? Well, there was a tradition that developed in the Levitical tribe that, I don't know if you remember when Moses and Aaron led the Israelites through the wilderness and they were going into the promised land. You know, Moses and Aaron didn't get there, but Joshua got there. Uh, Caleb got there. And, but one of the things that happened when they were going there was that they designated 12 tribes. And they all got a big chunk of land, except for one tribe. The one tribe that didn't get any land was the Levites. And the reason they didn't get any land was because they were to be in charge of the temple, which was a replica, in a sense, of heaven. And so they didn't need land. But in order for them to survive, all the other 11 tribes were to give the Levites 10% to live on. That's why you get the tithe at the church. You always wondered, right? Where did that thing come from? <laughs> well, that's where it comes from. So, so there was this tradition of giving 10%. And so um, what's interesting here is now Melchizedek receives, he collects this 10% from Abram, but Levites are not in existence yet, are they? However, they might be. Because the preacher tells us that Levi is in the loins of Abraham. <laughs> so that means that there will be a son that Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah have. You remember his name? Jacob. And Jacob then is going to have 12 sons. Remember he's going to marry Rachel and Leah both. And they're going to have 12 sons. 10 from Leah two from Rachel, and 
guess which one is named Levi? One of the ten. So Levi is Abram's grandson. And so what they're saying here, what the preacher is saying, is that um, that that uh, Melchizedek received the tithe because it was like Abram was giving a pledge card for his grandson. So we're going to have Levites here in a couple of generations, so I'm, I'm going to give you a pledge that we're going to start giving 10%. So that's why you have this covenant of priesthood in Israel. So it's not just for priests during the kingly era or priests during the judges, or it's, it's a continuation all the way back to Melchizedek who they consider to be the first priest. So the Hebrews preacher picks up on this in verse 3 of chapter 7 when he says there is no record of his father or, nor his mother, he's talking about Melchizedek, or any of his ancestors, nor beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever resembling the Son of God. And, uh, and I just jumped here, I'm sorry. So that is the scripture for the third distinction. Remember the first one is a blessing. The second one is the tithe. And the third one is that he has an eternal reign. Melchizedek, the priest, has an eternal reign because he has no father and he has no mother and he has no children. And there's no genealogy. Well, well, how does that make sense? Well, you got to go into some rabbinical teaching here. What the rabbis taught was that the scriptures could not lie. And so if Melchizedek, this great beginning priest of the priesthood, if he had no children, and if he did not have a mother or father, that means he was never born and that he never died, that he always existed. There's the argument. So it seems a little far-fetched for us, but this was an accepted interpretation during the time of Jesus and in the early church. And so what the preacher is telling this house church of Hebrews is that the Melchizedek, the, the priest, had an eternal reign. So he is like the forerunner of Jesus because Jesus is going to bring blessing upon people as the greater. People will offer tithes, gifts, in response to Jesus, and Jesus will reign eternally. So now you got the three distinctions that make Melchizedek such an interesting figure and why he was such an important uh, part of this preacher's sermon. What we now move to is a new covenant. You see, if we move out from the old priestly order, the Levites, to a new priesthood established by Jesus, then we are not just changing priests, but we are changing sacrificial systems. So we're not just saying that we have a different priest now, 
we're saying what the priest does, has done, is changed as well. I want to make an important distinction because what the preacher is, there's a lot of references to the law, but what, what he's referring to is not the law itself, but how the law was practiced. How the law was was being lived out. And, and if you remember, it was a sacrificial system. You took to the temple for all the festival days, all the holidays, you took your lambs and your bulls and your grain and your olive oil, your 10%, you, you took it all and gave it to the Levit- Le- Levitical priests in the temple. And they made the sacrifice for your sins. Then you went home and you sinned some more and you had to go back to Jerusalem and you had to take another lamb and more grain and some olive oil. And then you went home being forgiven and then you had to go back again. And it was a system of repetition because people struggled. And so the, the law didn't change, but the system wasn't really changing people either. And so what the preacher is saying is that they didn't get rid of the law. What we got rid of was the old sacrificial system and replaced it with a new sacrificial system. This reference to the law is how we live it out. The law doesn't change. The law never changes. So Jesus then is different from the old priests. Jesus looks more like Melchizedek than he does the other priests. Let's take a a brief look at that. The old priests were born into their livelihood. It's kind of like the, the royalty in a monarchy. How do you get your next king or your next queen? By having a child. You inherit the kingdom by receiving the crown. The crown becomes the symbol of the inheritance of that which you are to have. And that's what happened with the priests. How did you become a priest in the temple? You were born a Levite. And if you were from the Levite family, then you were going to be a priest. So what we see here is that these old priests were born into their livelihood But Jesus became a priest because he lived a perfect life without sin. That's how he became a priest. He lived a life without sin, and then he conquered death. When the old priest took office, they just moved in. There was no oath, no vow, no promise. But when Jesus became the great high priest... It says that God took an oath on behalf of Jesus. That's in chapter 7, verses 18 to 21. Let's take a quick look at that here. Yes, the old requirements about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus, for God said to him, The Lord God has taken an oath and will not break his vow. Referring to Jesus, it says, You are a priest forever. 
the old system always needed to add new priests because there were new sins and new people that needed to have their sins forgiven. The new system only needs one priest because this priest offered a sacrifice as one without sin. He offered a sacrifice himself as a sacrificial lamb so that our sins would be forgiven once and for all time. Your sins are gone. They are wiped away. And they cannot be held against you. So that's the first distinction about Jesus, is that he looks more like Melchizedek. Now I'm going to give you a second characteristic or distinction of Jesus. And um, this one, I'm a little nervous about sharing with you. And so if you're sitting next to someone, um, I, I want to implicate you as well, so it's not just me. So if you're sitting next to someone, I want you to whisper this to this person, because I'm just going to whisper it, because I don't want to say it out loud and then get struck by lightning. But I figure if we're all saying it, all at the same time, in a whisper, that God might let us live. Jesus was an illegitimate priest. Can you say that to your neighbor? Jesus was an illegitimate priest. Okay, now I'm in trouble. I just said it. But so are you. The priesthood existed through the Levite tribe. Remember I said, how do you become a priest? You become a Levite. So Jesus becomes a priest, but number one problem, he's not from the tribe of Levi. Where is Jesus from? Remember the lineage of King David? Where did King David come from? He's from the tribe of Judah. So, he is not a legitimate. We Maybe, rather than an illegitimate priest, let's say this. Jesus was an unlicensed priest. David Cole can relate to that because I had him serve communion last week. He's an unlicensed priest. So, when, when we take a look at this, the tribe of Judah has no priests. But Jesus was a priest, and he is the priest. He is the great high priest. So how does that happen? It happens because of his source. Remember how the priests became priests? They were born into it. Jesus' priesthood comes through that oath that God states on his behalf. Jesus' priesthood didn't come through a tradition. That's what the old priesthood was, a tradition. Jesus' priesthood comes through a relationship, a relationship that the Father has with his Son. And the Father offers an oath to the Son on behalf of the Son. And this is what he says. I have made an oath. The Lord has taken an oath, and he will not break his vow. Jesus, you are a priest 
forever. So Jesus was suspect because of his lineage. He was also suspect because of his sanctuary. All priests served in the temple. In the inner, uh, inner part of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Only the priests could go in there. Technically, it was the high priest who went in there once a year to forgive the sins of Israel. You remember the scapegoat? And how they would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness? They didn't sacrifice this goat. They would just put all their sins, all the sins of Israel on it, and then send it out into the wilderness. The only problem was that the next morning when you woke up and the goat's outside your window, you wonder, is that the scapegoat and did he come back for me? So how do we get rid of this sin once and for all? Well, the preacher's telling us Jesus did it because his sanctuary is different. He doesn't need a goat. He was the scapegoat. He offered himself. He was led out into the wilderness to die. And he died. And then he was raised again from the dead. And he appeared to the disciples and to hundreds of others. His offering would not be a repetition of lambs and bulls. His offering would be himself. And whereas the old sacrifices never truly brought any healing, Jesus' sacrifice brings complete healing from shame, from guilt, from arrogance, from pride, from all sin. Jesus wipes it away. And then he does this. He ushers in a new covenant through his new sacrifice. So we no longer give offerings at the altars to beg God for forgiveness. God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Take this offering and forgive my sins. You don't do that. You don't have to do that. Please don't do that. If you have an offering... Offer it in thanksgiving because of who you are today. A forgiven sinner. Loved by God. The new sacrifice brings this new healing. This new sacrifice brings a new covenant. And God made a covenant with his people through Moses. But that covenant kept getting broken. It was like God was lowering a rope. I like to call it the rope of hope. So God's lowering this rope of hope, and the people are holding on to it with all their might. But, you know, life kind of wears you down, and you begin to get weary. And before long, you feel that rope slipping, and then after that, you just let go. You give up. You give up on the hope of rope. The people were not able to remain faithful. But the preacher says, God is faithful. God is faithful. And God has promised you a new covenant. One of my favorite 
scriptures is from 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's a lot, there's a longer context to it, but, but this is a beautiful piece of it. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Now that's my kind of God. The old sacrificial system was being replaced by this new sacrifice. In Hebrews 8, at the, at the end of our reading here for today, we hear the preacher now preaching from Jeremiah. Start out in Genesis, went to Psalm 110, now we're in Jeremiah 31. And this should be familiar for us because this is where our name comes from, New Covenant Lutheran Church. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I, I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write my law upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For every one of them, from the least of them to the greatest of them, will know me. And I will forgive their wickedness, their sins. And I will never again remember those sins. In this new covenant, the law would no longer be written in books, but it would now be written in your hearts so that when you are confronted with issues, you would just know what is right, what is godly, what is pure. And you would just do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the old system, you had to be in a pecking order to be close to God. In this new system, all the people will know God, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And you are no longer orphaned children, lost, but you are now beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God. So if you ask yourself the question, and some people still ask this kind of question, will I ever measure up? The question is no longer necessary. It shouldn't enter your mind. It shouldn't be there. Because in God's eyes, you are valuable. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are being shown mercy. Not because of what you have done, not even because of who you are, but because of who God is. That's the kind of God the preacher is preaching to the house church of Hebrews about. And I believe that is the kind of God that we need today. I don't know about you, but I have had 
days of weariness. I mean, the virus was supposed to be two weeks long, and then two months, and now will it ever be done in two years? And, you know, I'm so tired of masks and no masks and vaccines and no vaccines and the division. That's what I'm tired of, the division. I mean, I have a dear friend who is part of the unvaxxed community who just got COVID. And my deepest prayers and hopes are for this friend. I have no, I don't want any judgment that's not the church. We are to be the ones who are praying for all of those, especially those we disagree with. We are to live like the great high priest lived and lives in us. We need hope. But God has given us something more than hope on a rope. I mean, we are mourning the death of a dear friend, Sue Duick. We are living through times of change. We are trying to make our way through the school with kids and teachers and parents dealing with this virus. We're trying to do that as a church. What I can tell you is that what the message was to this disheartened house church is the same message for you. Do not lose hope. God can do amazing things, even in the worst of times. And God will do that as long as we look to Jesus as our hope. As long as we keep our eyes on our great high priest who has made the sacrifice already for you. So quit kibbutzin and get out there and live life and serve your Lord by loving your neighbor and caring for your neighbor. Show them just who Jesus is. Not the world. Jesus. Amen.